But we're going to turn now to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. And we're turning this morning to what is, as you heard in the prayer, one of the most well-known stories in all of Scripture. You could probably give me the plot line. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let's listen now to the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. I want to introduce you to this morning, or maybe I should say reintroduce you to four different kings in this Christmas story, four kings we're going to look at. And as we look at these four separate kings together, I want to encourage you to think and remember about the theme of this message series. That is this, what needs to change in my life in order to make room for Christ? It's that simple. What patterns or behaviors or daily disciplines need to shift in my world in order to make room again for the Lord? And this first king that I want to speak about is is not a singular king, but rather traditionally we know them as a group of kings. We've already sung about them. Every year we, we sing or talk about these three kings of Orient are. And yet, biblically speaking, um, there's actually no mention at all of royalty of these men. In fact, rather than kings, we can just kind of take that and throw that out. They were more like astrologers or astronomers. And the Greek word in our passage is magos, right? Magi. And and it's from that word that we get magician. And these magi were, were most famous for interpreting dreams, interpreting the times, and most importantly for our purposes, interpreting the night skies. Remember, what made them wise is this is long before the age of enlightenment, and so the night sky was fundamental. The cosmos at that time were used for all kinds of purposes in understanding weather and navigation and seasons. And so these magi, they were experts at deciphering the meaning of those skies. You might remember they had come from these eastern cults that were centered on on the idolatry 
of creation, right? Interestingly enough, God's word has always cautioned his people away from these kind of practices. Look at this in Acts 7.42, how he detests this kind of worship of the stars. It says, God turning from his people, he abandoned them to the worship of the army of heaven. All the way back in Isaiah 47, the Lord indicts Israel for the rebellion. And look at what he says here. He says, let those who study the stars stand up and save you. Did we lose the whole, oh, praise the Lord. I'm on a roll, so you know the enemy's going to have a heyday. These men from the east in Babylon, Persia, somewhere along this, this, this eastern front, they see this constellation of stars, or should I say a star? I tried that back and forth. Can you hear me? Check, check, check. Let's try it now. Thank you. Can we give a round of applause for our tech guys too? They are so good. Thank you. Kind of thing where if everything goes right, you, you don't notice them, but the minute something goes wrong, everybody's like, it's his fault. <laughs> now we're told that these wise men though, they, they had come to pay homage to find this one who was born king of the Jews. Let's just take a pause for a moment. Let's just play Christmas trivia, right? Because we talk about them every year and we, we, we quickly forget that our, our traditions have mixed up with what's actually in the scriptures. So play Christmas trivia with me just for a minute. First, it said there's three of them, but we really have no idea how many men showed up that day. God's word tells us they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we're actually never given a number. It could have been two, it could have been a dozen. And second, these men are so mysterious that we don't even know their names. Tradition over the years have come up with many nicknames. You've probably heard of them at some point of Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar. But that too is not found anywhere in God's word. And here's one more thought. This one's going to blow your mind. If you have wise men sitting in your manger scene, when you go home, kick them out. Because you'll remember in our passage this morning, they didn't come to find him in a manger. They came to find him in a house. See, but now that we've gotten reacquainted, let, let me just ask these, this. What, what do these mysterious foreign pagan men teach us about making room for Jesus? What do we learn from them? Now, first off, here's one thought. How is it that the Lord of all creation uses his own cosmos to direct these secular people back to him? Remember this, these are not God-fearing men. These are idol worshipers. And yet God takes their very idolatry, right? These, these stars in the sky, and he now leads them through those cosmos to the newborn Christ. That should blow your mind. How sovereign our God is. We call this the doctrine of general revelation. That is, creation wasn't actually meant to be worshipped at all. It was meant to point us back to the creator himself, and you can learn all kinds of things about who God is just by the nature he created around us. Look at this at Psalm 19. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. 
You want a good example of this? Just go take a walk this afternoon, right? We know how blessed we are. Look around you. You can see it in the snow-capped mountains. You can see it in the sunrise, the sunset, the big sky we live under. It's all his. It's all evidence that points us to the Lord. You know, think about this. If you walk up to any famous painting, that same phenomenon occurs, right? By the brush strokes, by the pencil marks, the colors that you see, you can point from that painting back to the creator. Whether it's Picasso or Banksy, you know the name when you see the creation. So it is with the Lord. Paul in Romans 1.20, he says it like this. He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we are without excuse. See, these men, by God's sovereign hand, they... They now come to find the Lord by means of his very creation. And we don't know how these magi came to understand this this Jewish king had been born, except to say that God's sky testified to the reality. The star came over the place when it had rose, brought them near. Second, something to consider. It seems to me that these magi, they teach us, they remind us of an unbelieving world that is still longing for a king. We, we live in a place, let's face this, that worships creation, do we not? I mean, much like the stars, we, we can see it on the ski slopes, we can see it on the, the rivers. If we're not careful, we'll slip into it ourselves. But despite this, we also live among a people who at the same time are still questioning and looking for something more. Right? Still searching for answers, longing for what this life means. Why am I here? What, what, what am I doing on this planet? And here's my favorite part. Look at what happens next in verse 4. This general revelation of the skies now leads these men to the special revelation of the scriptures. See, the world around them is, is meant to point them in the direction of who Jesus is, but it's the scriptures that actually reveal his name. Look at this. Look at this next. Just note this with me in verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. Right there, they're actually quoting from Micah chapter 5 verse 2. See, Herod's given the word, which he then gives to the wise men, which then sends them on their way to the Christ child. And it's crazy to me how these magi, they actually become the unlikely messengers of Christmas. It should have been God's people, right? The ones who understood God's word, the prophecies foretold. But instead, as Jerusalem sleeps, God takes these secular men and he uses them to spread the word instead. I think it's an example to us for how far-reaching God's love really is. But as I said, there's four kings I want to talk about with you, and that's really just the first. The second king I think worth reflecting on a little bit is, is King Herod. Our chapter says this, chapter opens by telling us this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And remember, this was Herod the Great. Remember why they called him great? He was one of the greatest builders of all time, responsible for building the the temple in Jerusalem. He was a big deal, kept peace like no other monarchs in his day. See, but deep down, we also need to understand Herod was an incredibly insecure man. 
The Romans had put him in power as this vassal monarch, but he wasn't a Jew, he was an Edomite. And that means he really didn't quite fit the mold. He was kind of a, a half king, living this paranoid life. In fact, you'll remember that the historians say very clearly it would have been better to be Herod's pig than Herod's own son. He was so unreasonable, he would kill anyone who looked at him the wrong way. So you can imagine the, the flush look in this man's face when these foreign travelers arrived at this kingdom looking for this new Jewish king. Reminds me of the old 1932 Western. I think it was called The Western Code. It was the first movie where you heard the phrase, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And you know what happens next. Verse three, our passage says, when he heard this, he was troubled and therefore all of Jerusalem with him. Because when mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. Again, what do we learn from this king in preparing Jesus' room? See, when you compare the Magi, you learn that at the name of Christ, there's a crisis of decision that has to happen. The Magi set down these, these idols, their former life, and they come from the east to bow down before this child, but Herod now rejects him outright. In fact, Scripture now records this man as the villain of the story. Brian's going to bring to us next week the, the absolute evil things that Herod did to try to eliminate this, this threat. And suddenly now Herod is the antithesis of what it is to make room. He makes no room for Christ at all. In fact, as far as he was concerned, this was his kingdom, right? This was his throne. This was his world. He was the one in control. Especially not the newborn child is going to come in and take us from me. That really brings me then to the third king. And you won't find this king mentioned in our passage, but I would say this is probably the one king we should ponder a bit more deeply. That is to say, this third king is you and me. Now hear me out, maybe you've never thought of yourself as a monarch before, but we all have a throne that we sit upon, right? Many years ago, and Jen and I bought our first home down in Houston, um, it was this rundown foreclosure, and we painted it up, fixed the floors, got a new door in, and just about the time this, this place was feeling like home, I woke up early one morning, about 6 a.m. to the noise of a chainsaw. I walked out to the kitchen window and looked out my window to see my neighbor had this thing in full bore and he was chopping down my fence one picket at a time. And as I'm trying to piece together in my mind the reality that I'm seeing in front of me, I woke Jen up and we're, we decided, well, what is going on? So I Googled the HOA to try to figure out what this man is doing with my fence and come to find out my neighbor is the HOA president. I tell you, I've never prayed over something so hard that is so fickle in my life. See, in Houston, when it rains, it rains for days, right? And it's not abnormal to have inches of water sitting in your backyard. And so my neighbor came up with this great plan. He would extend his roof over his side yard onto my fence, and that way the water would come running down. No problem for him. His lawnmower would stay good and dry. So I called a meeting, many meetings, and to his credit, after we looked over the covenants together, calmer heads prevailed and he repented of his carpentry. But I remember halfway through that debate, he said something to me that was truth that stuck with me. He said, Ryan, every man's house is his castle. And in that castle, every man is a king, correct? 
You know, I think it's true, right? We, we all have some sort of territory in our lives not to be stepped on. Not just for men, but for women as well. Right? Deep inside of us, we all have this territory that we need to step on. Am I good? Yeah, let's just use this one. This one's safe. I feel safe with this microphone. <laughs> in, in, inside all of us, right, is this, this ability to, to turn to be the Herodian king. And we all have this throne somewhere in our lives. Dig deep with me and think about where it is. You know, like Herod, when we, when we see the threat, when we perceive this hazard to my domain, we will, if we're not careful, deal with it in evil ways. Sinful ways, broken ways, ways that damage other people. It's innate in all of us. We can be sinful, fleshful, territorial beings but when it comes to the Christmas story, you have to realize this simple fact that, that our kingdoms cannot survive if we're going to live for his. And really deep down, I think what we need is to confess then that it's, it's not just Herod who has the insecurities. It's not just Herod who, who has this very real ability to do evil things out of this human desire within. But we all struggle. P. Scazzaro, who is a well-known Christian author, he once talked about two different postures by which we often go about our day. He says that the first one is really about our, uh, me sitting on my throne, and the, the other one, the other posture is one that gives to his throne. And to talk about this, to, to, to picture this, he gives this name Carlos, and he talks about two different Carloses to make his point. The first Carlos he speaks of is a busy Carlos. Um, Carlos is caught up in his own world. And his own dreams. Carlos wakes up at 6.30 in the morning, right on the buzzer, and he rushes to the shower. He grabs an apple, kisses his wife goodbye, and sprints back out the door, which is all good and well, except for Carlos has no idea what's going on in his children's lives. In fact, the night before that, he missed dinner. In fact, by the time he got home, everyone was in bed. And this wasn't just a one-time occurrence. This was a pattern in Carlos's life. And so in the morning... He was more than aware of his wife's agitation. He could tell she was exhausted and lonely, but he was late to work already, so, so his apology would have to come later. On the way, his mind is already spinning with the to-dos. He figures, I can speed a little bit. I gotta get to work and get my things done. And when he pulls into the parking lot, he's already forgotten about everything else in his life except for him. Now the second Carlos, he wakes up at 6 a.m., and instead of rushing, he spends the first 30 minutes of his day in the Word. And before anyone wakes up, he opens his Bible as this humble gesture, and he asks the king to speak to him first before anybody else gets a hold of him. Now, he worked the night before as well, but this was far from a pattern. In fact, Carlos knows if he doesn't give his priority to the Lord and then to his family, he's working from fumes. So he opens his calendar, and he begins to think through his day. And he's honest with God about every meeting coming his way, every encounter. He's honest with God about his feelings, how he thinks, his thoughts, and he asks the Lord to lead him. Then he walks through his family and he prays over every one of them by name. And then he sits in silence as he goes through the shortcomings he's fully aware of, and he asks God to give him wisdom and strength and to go before him. And as he's considering the majesty of God, he notes the strongholds in his life that need to die, the inner sin that needs to be dealt with, and the shadows that now need light cast over them. 
See, it's subtle, right? But the first Carlos is living for his kingdom. And the second Carlos knows full well he's not fit to be king. See, there's a fourth king in this passage, right? And I saved the best for last. He's the only everlasting monarch to have ever existed on this planet, if you believe it. The Messiah, right? The Savior, God with us, the one born king. And the reality is this king, he's a polarizing figure because when you come face to face with Jesus, you are immediately faced with one of two paths. The first is the wise men who turned from their idolatrous worship and came to find this Christ child. And when they found him, upon seeing his face, fell to their knees with tithe and praise and blessing. And then there was Herod, the one that could creep up in all of us, the one that has this false assumption that we're in charge. And with that self-rule inside comes this anxious and paranoid way about us because we know, we know full well that's not a throne I'm going to stay on. The Christmas story teaches us you cannot have it both ways. There can only be one king in your life. There can only be one kingdom that you live for. Revelation 4, 10 to 11 teaches us of this eternal kingdom where, where, look at this, the elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they cast their crowns before the Lord and begin singing to him, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. That is the king born to us. And so again, the question then is, what needs to change in your life to make room for that king? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let all the rest be added unto you. Let's ask God to search our hearts and help us do that this week. Will you pray with me? Man, God, you are the autonomous one. <laughs> Lord, you are the one who in your sovereignty all things move and live and have their being. Lord, you are the unchangeable, unmovable rock of our faith. And Lord, somehow in the midst of your holiness and righteousness, you condescended to us, took on flesh, and God, so often we just confess, we forget the momentous occasion that that was. The momentous occasion that that still is because that same child, Lord, we confess, lived and died and rose again. And God, we know in Jesus Christ, you're coming again. And so, Lord, we just confess to you that in these in-between times, we, we so often live for ourselves, God. In all of us is this ability to be king and queen of my own life, my own domain, my own world. So God, we just lay before you the, the anxieties of our control, the tempers that come with, with feeling like something belongs to us, or the quarrels that stem up when we forget to humble ourselves before you. And God, we ask that you would recenter us on the cross that you would fix our eyes back on what matters. Lord, that we would live not for our kingdom, 
but that we would live for yours. God, help us to do that this week. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.